Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex and I'm joined today by the Friday crew, including our very own Natasha Moscarenas, a senior reporter here at TechCrunch. Natasha, hi. Hello, hello. I am four days into my Twitter hiatus and I'm feeling so excited to like catch up on everything with all of you in real time. I'm just looking forward to when I don't have to send you tweets on Slack because that (laughs) is a very inefficient way of sharing the news. But for you, anything. (laughs) We also have Marianne Azevedo, another one of our senior reporter crew. Marianne, hello. How are you holding up? I am doing great, but not on a Twitter break. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Natasha, how bad is the withdrawal so far four days in? I keep opening it up and then shutting it off, but I also have checked DMs and I'm going on a Twitter space later, so I'm doing great and not addicted at all. Is this like walking out of rehab to the liquor store and then walking back into rehab and saying like, I'm still here, you know, yeah. come on now. It's draining, but I feel I feel clearer, so maybe I'll keep it up. Let us know how it goes. And actually, I would love to talk about that later on, but today we have so much to get through, including funding rounds from Anyplace, Frost Giant, and Parthian. We are going to talk about Mark Cuban, Pharmacy the American healthcare system and where private and public money should and should not land. And then we're going to riff about the YC Crypto Collective, strap in for that one, and then also Mentor Collective, EdTech, and how to help folks fit in more. It's going to be a packed show. Let's get into it. Marianne, tell me why any place is a cool company when we already have Airbnb in this world. Any place is a startup that gives people who want to just try to work from another city for a little while, a way to do so, you can find an apartment that's fully furnished, home office that's totally fully equipped for remote work, including green screens, fast internet access. You know, they raised 5.3 million in a series A led by GA Technologies and a bunch of other interesting angels. They're doing something different and interesting, apparently. I think my big question for them is can they convince users that they're reinventing just enough that they will actually go to this platform and be noticed past Airbnb? Because Airbnb, I think, has been making tweaks like Wi-Fi verification and super host status to make people feel better about working remotely. And I'm sure I'm sure they're going to continue to do that. So my big question is, like, can your marketing get you past Airbnb. It's a great point. I think the fact that they say, if I recall the CEO's comments, Marianne, that each any place select property is going to have gigabit internet, which is pretty darn quick. And I, I recently learned how fast some tech renters internet is at home. And I was curious how they managed to use Zoom because Zoom is pretty bandwidth intensive. And I think the remote world of today has such higher bandwidth requirements for individual workers who are remote. It's not just Slack and email. It's you need to have HD video live, et cetera. So like Airbnbs just don't cut it. Airbnbs are good if you want to go write a book of bad poetry sitting by the pond. You can go do your Walden thing. But if you want to work, to, to me, just having that guarantee internet speed would make this something that I would choose over pretty much anything else because that's oxygen for our lives. Another point that CEO and founder Steve Naito, he said that the, actually they don't really view Airbnb as like a competitor. It's an acquisition channel. Any place is an operator. Airbnb is not. It's still a marketplace. They are different in that respect. Any place actually goes and signs agreements with these real estate developers and then master leases out the property. And that's how they make money. They mark it up and then they they rent it out to an everyday person who wants the space for a little while. So there's a world in which Airbnb goes to any place when they really want to double down on 
work from home friendly properties absolutely and does a partnership okay that, so. that makes it a little better i guess like yeah not a competitor just like the giant in which they will lean on <laughs> two quick points before we move on to the next funding round one every company who says they're not competing with the incumbent in their industry is full of shit for example <laughs> I think it was the CEO of Databricks who said they're not competing with uh, Snowflake because Snowflake is a data lake and Databricks is essentially analytics on top of your data lake. Guess what they're doing now? They're competing. And so in this case, it's like, you know, come on, guys. Uh, also, one tiny point, Marianne, you raised a really great point about marketplace versus direct ownership, master leases, and then releasing. It means that any place is going to be much more capital intensive than Airbnb was. The hack that Airbnb had early in its life was it had free inventory. People just signed up and handled all the logistics and the management. And blah, 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 blah. You know, Airbnb isn't paying internet bills at thousands of properties, right? So any place to me probably has to have a, a slightly higher level of markup to make its overall capital structure be efficient. It, it just feels like a real estate play to me with venture backing, which as we know from other historical examples, one that you can name starts with a W and has another W in its name. That can be a hard thing to scale in a venture sense. So far, the select apartments are at over 90% occupancies. They're doing something right. You know more about prop tech than either of us. And I'm wondering too, like where this fits into all the money that's going in there. Is this one of them that you feel like is specifically reinventing the wheel? Or does this feel kind of a continuation of what we talked about in the podcast over the past few months, which is another company that's trying to make work from home people have a getaway similar to trailers or backyard pods. It is a little bit of a reinvention, but it is unique. Yeah. Like never undersell the fact that people like we're saying, like, I feel like very anxious if I'm going to go on vacation and work remotely because I'm like, OK, that's going to be a slow week for me <laughs> at right. work. So like, right. if there's any way that you can get me to feel good and not guilty about going somewhere, imagine if we could podcast from Austin together. All of us. I'd love it. Like, it would be crazy. So, I mean, I'm here for that, to be clear. That wouldn't work. That wouldn't work because I would be in a barbecue coma (laughs) and I would not be able to to summon the necessary energy to do the podcast. Taking a pivot away from prop deck into my own personal uh, hobby horse domain of things that I love is games. And a gaming company raised money this week. It's called Frost Giant. It is a new gaming studio formed of ex-Blizzard employees who are essentially raising money, building a new game. Imagine like Metallica breaks up, right? If the guitar player goes off and founds a new band, everyone's still going to pay some attention to it. And so there's a halo effect to past successes. And I think in this case, because the founders are from the gaming world, they do have some kind of in-market credibility with the gaming community that's going to help them generate interest. They already have a subreddit about their game. They're doing teasers, building buzz and so forth. So I don't know how it's going to perform when it does come out in a while, but they certainly have the capital to get there. And they do have some market trust with gamers. We know that they raised a 25 million Series A, which is a lot of money and maybe would handle some of that runway. Is this more a proof that VCs are getting more fluent in gaming startups? Or is this proof of like a new business model? Like how new is what they're doing? It feels new, even if it is a conglomeration of things that we've seen before. So they talked about building the game as a service. They talked about having an esports DNA inside of it. They talked about building a game that can have a campaign focus and still be multiplayer friendly. They talked about working with well-known competitive gamers to make sure that it works in terms of balance and so forth. So one, I'm stoked about it because I, I know the games the founders have worked on before and they're some of my favorites. But also, like, I feel like everything I asked, they said kind of like, yeah. And so to me, I don't know where to draw the lines around what they're building. And so I'm still just chock full of questions. To give you as an example about this, they wouldn't tell me really the setting of the game. 
if it's going to be high, high fantasy, far future, the past. And so, like, there's not a lot known. But I will say they raised $4.7 million in a seed round, quickly added $5 more million, and then raised a Series A. So whatever they are building must look pretty cool if you get to see it. I just haven't gotten to see anything past the, the founders on Zoom. Yeah, it's like I wonder what the VC slash that early Discord community knows that we don't, if anything. <laughs> like, is is this might be off topic, but like, is gaming usually that secretive before launch? Yeah, well, gaming's a bit like Hollywood. You know, there's teasers, there's drops, there's you know notes about things. There's major, you know, how like there's like um, there's the Cannes Film Festival and so forth. Uh, in the gaming world, there's large gaming events in which people show off teasers of games, trailers, and so forth to build hype even years in advance. Uh, but on the VC point about what they see, one thing that the guys told me was that they're finding a surprising number of VC firms that have at least one partner who has a history of playing RTS games, which is the 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 type of game they're talking about. And so they kind of have an in, if you will, at VCs. It also feels like that this is, is a large bet on the founders and their experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think that's, I, I don't think it, if you didn't have the background they had in the world of gaming, working on titles like StarCraft that people know, I don't think VCs would be willing to just put this much money and time into it. But given the pedigree, it kind of makes sense to me. And just as a dweeb, as, as a person who buys and plays games pretty often, because I don't have kids, so I have lots of time. This is really exciting. And frankly, I hope it works. Because if it does work, maybe we'll see more of this. You know, the, the RTS uh, genre, if you will, isn't the most popular. It's not a, a free-to-play first-person shooter like Fortnite. It's a little bit nerdy. It's a little bit harder to play. And so I, I'm just kind of bullish as a gamer in this genre, if that makes sense. Even as a non-gamer, I think after our gaming deep dive on equity a few months ago, we really hammered in this idea that the like heart of gaming is very scrappy and indie and not part of the big corporations. And so given the fact that Blizzard was just acquired by Microsoft, maybe we'll even see more Blizzard mafia companies or games spin out. Um, it takes a lot of energy. I also learned to create a game, not as simple as like a SaaS company, but um, I, I feel like it's kind of interesting work. We might see like a whole new influx of early stage energy here. I hope so. It, it combines art, and music, animation, computer science, world building, storytelling, like like a good game really does quite a lot. And I, I think we forget exactly how many components go into making games work and how hard Fortnite had to work to get the pieces right, to make a game that was that sticky and that that worked that well. But let's not spend too much time just letting me talk about video games because I will talk for three hours if you let me. Let's move on to Parthian. And Natasha, this is a, a fascinating company because it seems to be wanting to help consumers help themselves when it comes to money. So tell, tell us about how they're what they do and why we're talking about them today. So I've been tracking Parthian for maybe six months. They were in the Peer VC Accelerator. And that's when I first started talking to their CEO, Herman Hezerkani. And he had this really interesting, actually mesh of all of our worlds, which is like EdTech meets FinTech. And I am just someone who wants to see EdTech talk to other sectors a lot. So when that happens, I am immediately interested. So the way that he's looking at combining those two worlds is he started Parthian. It's a personal financing, monitoring and education app. I have beta access to right now. And you basically log in and start to look at these bite-sized lessons, such as how to understand crypto or how to start budgeting. That's the ed tech component, obviously, bite-sized TikTok-esque lessons. And then the fintech component is at the end, and this is a metric that they track in order to understand success. They have kind of an action item. So Parthian for the crypto module, for example, is like set up a Coinbase wallet. That is your only action item. And one day they could get into a world where, okay, this is getting into the proactive bit, get into a world where they say, hey, you're 
your balance is pretty high. Like you should consider doing something with it. Or have you thought about lessening your spending in this area? Kind of using like, okay, we taught you how to do this. Now let's track how you're doing with the lessons that we taught you. Does that make sense? For one, I love the action item. Having something concrete to do. I like their subscription business model. What they're trying to do is actually help people when they have a fever. I love this analogy, like when they overspend instead of when they're feeling ambitious, say after a New Year's resolution. How do you get people to get interested in it to begin with? How do you draw the person in? Totally. I mean, and I kind of like that was actually a second interview question I had for him because he kind of pitch me on this whole idea of like proactive finance and getting people before they know. But I was like, people, people have to know about Parthian in order to right. even begin <laughs> not knowing to care about personal finance. And, and his argument, which I think I actually didn't include in the piece, so I'm glad you brought this up, is that he's starting by giving us or giving consumers like a pretty like hot topic to get interested in the app. So the the module right now is how to understand crypto because there is such a hunger appetite wave. I mean, TC is even hiring multiple crypto reporters. So I, I feel like there is such an appetite for it right now. So he was like, maybe we'll get someone in via crypto. But the people who came for crypto are now asking for 401k help. And so I don't know how often they can replicate it because it does still at the end of the day depend on someone caring, but maybe a little less given crypto is kind of like the question right now for so many people. Question about this. Do you use this application as an individual or can you use it as like part of a couple? Ooh, I've, right now it feels very single player, but tell me why, I guess the, why couple would make sense. Well, it just kind of doubles your active users. If you bring in one person, like if you're using a, like I can see a lot of folks getting into a relationship in which their money became if not commingled, a little bit more of a team process. And that's when you might start thinking more about budgeting, more about investing, more about not floating too much cash in an inefficient manner because you're probably paying a little bit more attention. And so to me, like I can see couples really wanting to like, you know, dig into a lot of issues that come up when you do have more of a team play. Marianne, you're familiar with this. Like, why is my partner putting all of her money into this weird index fund? Or alternatively, a Coinbase account. <laughs> Totally. I think the social layer is like so real. And I was going to actually give you something, Alex, interesting, because I read your piece on NerdWallet when they went public. And until then, I didn't really know NerdWallet was like this content business meeting fintech, which is very similar to Parthian. And so they are actually trying to kind of avoid the NerdWallet playbook and they wouldn't name them by name, but I named them for them. But I'm wondering what you think on it. Because because NerdWallet is a strong business, so why not try and at least follow what they've somewhat kind of explained to the market? So so NerdWallet is a very efficient content play, and essentially what they do is they post things like how to find a I don't know a, a low APR credit card if you're in college, and they write about it. People come in and read the thing, and then there are a variety of um, affiliate links that allow you to kind of go forth and, and get a service. NerdWallet gets a cut, and they've proven that you can grow that business into a public company size. Huzzah. I, I think my, my headline was something about like how you can write your way to an IPO. As a nerd, as a word nerd, it made me happy. But Parthian, though, it seems to be more like an app that I install to use to both manage my money and learn more. And so to me, the nerd wallet example could be a, a top of funnel sort of affair. But the company doesn't be doing quite a lot more once it gets someone in because nerd wallet wants to hand you to Visa, collect their fee and be like, if that credit card sucks, you come back and we'll help you get another one. Whereas Parthian wants to shame you for spending too much money right after your pay period and, you know, before you run out of money later in the month. So I, I would say related, but different. 
I love the name and shame game. Like, I feel like that'll always grab my attention, but hopefully (laughs) we see more of it. And I guess transitioning a little into like our next topic, education. And when I was talking to Armand about this, he was like a high schooler and was like, I decided that private for profit companies are the way to make impact. And today, I mean, and this week we saw the same thing with Mark Cuban. Wow. Yeah. So Mark Cuban doesn't come up on the show too often, which is probably a mistake because Mark Cuban is a very interesting person. Um, (laughs) But he kind of blew our minds over the weekend by announcing a new pharmacy. And essentially the company is designed, as far as I can tell, it's called Cost Plus Drug Company. It's designed to make drugs that are past their patent, their generics, at a very, very low margin and offer them to consumers as a way to reduce stress. And the American healthcare system is a mess. And so I thought this was fantastic. Natasha, but in our prep meeting, it really did bring up the question of working as a society, kind of thinking about the government level versus working on the private basis with individuals kind of building companies that might plug holes in the safety net. It doesn't accept health insurance. And so it really is trying to look at this from a different way than we're seeing a lot of like Americans today and the way that they think about health care. But because I guess Mark Cuban is a billionaire, I think it gives us like this really dramatic context to view the effort in. Like on one side, it's like, are billionaires the ones that are going to get us to the moon and get us accessible health care? Or will it be like very hard, slow to change regulatory issues? Because we saw it with Uber, we saw it with Airbnb. This feels more than those examples because it's it, it could actually change like lives, period. When you hear about how simple the model is, where they basically cut out the middleman, charge 15% more than cost, and I think like $3 fee and then a $5 for shipping. And that seems like a very simple model, right? So you have to ask, why wasn't this done before? There's also a very simple answer to that question, money, let's face it. One perfect example of that is one drug that's used to treat leukemia and other cancers on this site can go for as low as $17.10 compared to $2,500 and $2 at another pharmacy. I mean, come on, this is just fucking ridiculous. Sorry. I mean, this enrages me to no end. Like how on earth can anybody feel good about charging $2,500 for something to treat a very, very sick person when it could be sold as little as $17, and you can still make money off of it. Come on. Grace, can we get a uh, cash register cha-ching in the background? Thank you. That's, I think, the answer, Marianne. And that's why this is so disruptive to me, because they're just saying, look, we're just going to go out there and do cost plus 15%, period, low shipping rates. Here it is. And they're doing, I think, over 100 generic drugs. I went on the site earlier today just to poke around and click around. Super easy to use. Critically, my parents could navigate it, I think. That's kind of my test for things like this. You know, would my parents who are very smart, but also 68, 9, somewhere in their years old, could they figure it out when HBO Max flummoxed them the other day? Probably. Which means they will have the chance to actually impact people on maybe fixed incomes that are older in life who need this stuff. So, yay? Yeah, I mean, Mark Cuban already tweeted, I think, yesterday that because of the incredible demand, they are hopeful that they're going to announce their first price decrease in the wow. next 30 days. Ah. So it's working so far. I, and I think they're <laughs> banking on volume, right? Like yeah. lots of volume. And then that will lead to lots of, of revenue. But hey, I'm here. I'm here for it. I applaud it. I'm excited about it. We need more of it. Yeah. There's a data point in our notes uh, from our coverage of this company that really made me sad. According to a, a Gallup poll, 18 million Americans are unable to afford at least one doctor prescribed medication in the last three months, which means there's a lot of folks out there in this country, a historically wealthy nation, one of the richest in in time is failing to provide 
basic medical coverage for its citizens. And uh, it bums me out that we're here waiting for Mark Cuban, a person that I've talked to a few times, to do it for us. You think we could collectively as a society pull this off, but it just goes to show that how money inside a democracy can rot the core uh, institutions that we depend on. I wish it was as simple as like the incentives are misaligned, but a billionaire's hair and it's fine. But Alex, I think you tweeted this week, even though I'm on my Twitter break, I like have gotten some things have fallen through the cracks <laughs> um, that like, you know, why don't VCs just fund a lot more of this? Something like insulin, for example, will never show up on this site, if I'm correct. And I think like those limitations are still disheartening and just give me trust issues all yeah. around. So I tweeted out, you know, why aren't VCs funding low cost insulin varieties? And the short version that everyone quickly pointed out to me, thanks everybody for making me feel so dumb, was that there's certain regulations around that. And this brings up the economic concept of regulatory capture, which we don't need to really dive into, but essentially there's more speed bumps than you might think for certain drugs to be done. That's why I was so happy to see the Mark Cuban thing actually go ahead and pull off over a hundred medications because it shows that they have, they have breadth, everything from hormonal birth control to blood thinners to et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It, it, it's quite wide. Uh, can I make one quick point about the government Please. though? Like, uh, I've thought a lot about space lately because I've been watching the James Webb Space Telescope pre-launch, launch, trip out to L2 space where it's going to sit there with its fancy sun shield and collect photons about stuff that happened about 80 quadrillion years ago. And I'm so excited about it. It's also a stupid use of money. It's a great use of money. It's also very dumb. And that's a project that I think the government should do because it's pure science. It's going to go out there and let's learn. Let's figure things out in the world. I'm also really glad that SpaceX has managed to find a way to put stuff into low Earth orbit for like the equivalent of $5 compared to what it cost 20 years ago. That's a great use of, of private money and industry. So there, there is a space for both in my head. In this case, though, you'd think we could do it at the state level, but instead we're doing it at the, uh, the Mark Cuban level, uh, which is a, <laughs> it's a Mark know, Cuban size problem. <laughs> thank you, Mark. But also, I wish you didn't have to. So Mark Cuban gave us an example of an individual solving a huge problem like healthcare, but luckily this week we have another example of a collective solving um, a question mark of a category, which is crypto. <laughs> so how do we feel about it, guys? Hundreds of YC alumni joined a crypto collective to back Web3 startups. I mean, um, I got a lot of thoughts about this. Uh, yeah. Marianne, before I rattle off 88 things, do you want to go first? I'm sure maybe it's not their intention, but it just kind of screams exclusivity and like kind of fraternity sorority feels like i mean one thing people talk about when it comes to the world of fintech in general is kind of opening up more financial services to more people and here we have an example of an in crowd inviting folks in to kind of do this thing here's my question though marianne and, and, and you'll get this is this kind of like the credit union model you know there's like the air force credit union and like if you're yeah. part of a certain group of people you can join I don't know. I'd like to think so, but I'm not so sure. In some ways, it's like, okay, so like I'll, share, I'll rattle off some background on what this really is. So right now, the collective has more than 1,000 YC founders. For context, there are 3,300 companies in YC as of our last data poll. Each member needs to mint an NFT to verify membership. It's already closed an initial fund and invested in 30 startups. The same way equity and its alums could get together and invest in other podcast efforts. It's cool, but obviously YC being something that's so inherently exclusive, adding another layer of exclusivity to invest in something that again, exclusive, you're going to get a little roasted for that, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also minting an NFT to verify membership. Yeah. Why don't you just like share your LinkedIn profile? Yeah. It's a like, bit much. 
it's a bit much. It's framework they made up to solve a non-existing problem. Like you don't have to do this. Also, it's called Orange Dow because Y Combinator's logo is orange. Cute. <laughs> is it really a Dow? It's being quote led by Ben Huh. So I mean, <laughs> shout, shout out Ben. But like, if it's a Dow, why does it have a, a leader? And also, why is the fund a separate legal entity? Like to me, like it, it just seems like a, like a crypto spray paint job over the fact that YC founders want to invest in something they think is going to make them a lot of money quickly. So cool. But you know, when it comes to solving the world's problems, to me, this is a zero. It's kind of like a syndicate. I remember like Stanford GSB class, like came together and launched a venture fund. And that actually didn't get too much pushback, even though it's kind of the similar idea. So I wonder if there's some inherent, I guess, pressure when you do, like, as we kind of said, have all those buzzwords of YC crypto DAO that makes this a little more quote unquote annoying than other yes. efforts, because it, it is like the, the Stanford GSB syndicate is the exact same thing. Exclusive meets exclusive meets even more exclusive. Any club that won't have me, I don't want to be a part of anyways <laughs> to, to ruin the old Groucho Marx joke. I, my general beef is most of these DAOs aren't. Like, remember the whole Constitution DAO? That was just kind of like a, a Discord free-for-all that wasn't yes. actually a decentralized, autonomous organization. There's talk in our coverage of this about, you know, governance tokens for effort. And I, I, to me, it just seems like a lot of faff to solve a non-existent problem. Why not put together a regular fund? or a rolling fund and let people that you know are YC founders because you can read their Twitter or LinkedIn page, contribute money to it as they will. Why does it have to be crypto specific? It's a good way to get coverage, but like, my God, I, are we just a little burned out on crypto or is this as so. dumb as I think it is? I mean, okay. I think we are. And I think we're all just also turned off by that whole, you know, exclusive thing. One of the things they're saying is they'll help startups apply to be accepted into Y Combinator, provide them with pre and post YC funding. I think we've discovered the new form of legacy enrollment at Harvard, and it's entitled Getting the YC Orange DAO to Help You Get Into YC so that way you can join the DAO and help someone else go through YC and join the DAO. Right? Is that? Basically. Definitely. I mean, in some ways, I'm like, okay, this feels inevitable if as YC graduates to becoming like a 1,000 company per batch sort of ordeal and accelerator, we could see one of these pop up for like every sort of vertical for YC. The alums get so big enough that it makes sense that they come together and create funds like that in and of itself isn't, I don't think, controversial. It's not as it's offensive. Like, yeah. I, so like, I, I guess like I'm mixed. Like I think I like want to rightfully be annoyed about it, but I'm also like everyone's doing this. This is just like a sig. This is just like a sector maturing during a time where that sector happens to be hype. Remember when YC gave founders like $48, put them in a little apartment, it was like focus. Very different. Now, yeah. now, now we're here. And I think it goes to show how much extra money there is floating around. I want to grab a quote before we move on to Mentor Collective, which is this Ben Huck comment. It's crazy to think about an alumni group that becomes its own entity that is for profit and generates wealth for its members, which is exactly what Natasha mentioned with the business school fund. So like, did these people do any research before they started this? Do they think they invented it? <laughs> Unknown. They, it's it, 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 To me, like the lack of historical knowledge make, makes all of the arrogance of these things to be slightly unpalatable to my cynical brain. Sorry for being a hater, but like if you buy an NFT that gets you membership to this group and you're not a YC founder, email us. We'll have you on the show. Thank you. Perfect. Um, I guess like all of our mutual exhaustion with membership is part of why I feel like hopefully my new beat will be about mentorship, job placement, actually empowering people to break into these networks that we're all so tired of ruling the day, which is why I was really excited to write about Mentor Collective. It's an advice marketplace 
place, which I'm usually pretty anti because I think mentors are much harder to find than like a tech platform would make it out to be. But I like the company because it basically goes to higher education institutions and corporations and matches historically overlooked students with mentors that are diverse as well. And so maybe you can get into a great school. But when you get to that great school, are you having the foresight or conversations to go to office hours or to join this club at this time? It's kind of advice like that that helps. I think it started with helping international students understand how to work within university politics a little bit and and kind of has grown from there, which I found like speaking the language of higher ed once you get there to be a really interesting problem to solve. And the company just raised a $21 million Series A from Resolve Growth Partners, which is why it's on the show this week. Natasha, though, I, I know they got to like $10 million in ARR, give or take. So does this, does, do schools and corporations pay Mentor Collective to link their students and employees with mentors that Mentor Collective provides? Is that the model? Totally. It's that. And then plus the only other thing I would add, um, which is somewhat controversial now that they've taken on VC backing before they were bootstrapped, is all their mentors are volunteers. So oh, we saw wow. Duolingo build their entire company off of volunteer translators and stuff like that. And once they started taking on VC money and actually making money, they shut down that program. So I see the same kind of future starting for Mentor Collective because it feels even though I would love to mentor for free I do and I want to do more of it like I could see a for-profit VC-backed company needing to pay their volunteers <laughs> right <laughs> just it's a little weird so that's something that I think Alex you brought up in the editing process with that piece like I did not think of that until you brought that up what is their revenue model like how, how have they been making money which they seem to be doing a good amount of they doubled revenue last year but how yeah, I mean, it, it is definitely like higher education, figuring out, uh, finally understanding that they need to serve their students mental health and I guess feeling of belonging as like a way to up retention at the institutions. So to answer your question, like like we said, that they basically charge these higher ed companies. Their pitch to higher ed is we're going to help retention and you're going to get more tuition revenue. Their pitch to students is we're going to make you feel more heard and empowered to secure that summer internship or to, to, to basically get what you should from college, which is social mobility. Damn. Yeah. That's, that's, Right down to the crux of the issue. Well said. <laughs> I know, right? So I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've loved seeing EdTech get a little bit more emotional over the past year, I've, even though I'm still a little hesitant on the idea of meeting a mentor and having it be like this like tech-powered VC-backed platform. I'm starting to open up to it because my best mentors have come from privilege and access from the SF Chronicle and meeting Alex to joining TC and meeting Henry. So I, I feel like there's like a lot of like difficulty to explain to yourself why this doesn't make sense if you yourself have benefited from it. The struggle that I've had is, you know, in, in less traditional careers, it's hard to find the right mentor, you know? And so like, you know, in, in journalism, my weird little journalism path has been mostly lit by Owen Thomas, formerly of the Chronicle and now of, of Protocol, formerly of Valley Wagon. Uh, he's been around for a while. One of the kindest humans in the entire planet we became friends originally because we went to the same university back to the point about privilege and access and so forth. And that kind of gave us an early bonding point and we've been friends ever since. I'm skeptical of how they can find enough mentors sure. that are the correct fits for enough people to actually make this work. If they can, fuck yes. But that's, that's where my doubt comes in because having an incorrect mentor is like talking to your parents for career advice. They're talking a book from 30 years ago and it's not very useful. And so yeah. not to be rude, but that's kind of no, I'm totally. Yeah, I, I kind of have to agree. I'm a, I'm a little skeptical in that I don't. It's not arrogant at all because I think the intentions are very good. But it's like 
mentorship is something that's very personal and like how do you how can you determine like what is the criteria the criteria they are using a lot of it can be just chemistry like on paper someone can seem like they'd be a great mentor but then like you talk to that individual it's like ugh, you know what i mean yeah definitely i mean hopefully this is like the stress test for personalized education which is that which edtech has had in its mouth for like so long i guess like i think that similar to even like the first funding we talked about, which is requiring actual properties and things that are not easily scalable overnight. Mentor Collective does just require humans meeting humans one-to-one. And that will always be an issue, but like a really exciting opportunity for tech. It's interesting to see that they finally convinced VCs to back it after taking, I guess, seven years for not. I, I feel like maybe there is like an opportunity now that they have more money that they and they can pay mentors maybe down the road hoping um, that that we'll see more mentors get inside. They're going to have to pay mentors if they're going to do this at a, at a commercial scale. It's also going to be how they're going to be able to filter the people out because you have more choosing ability if you pay money. Uh, just to wrap us up, I know we have to go, but I'm going to throw in a, a little plug here for a human who was my advisor during college, who I have not talked to in too long. Bonnie Cantor, if you do hear this, thank you for all the help you did in saving my college career from the hell of economics. And on that very positive note, Natasha, Marianne, an absolute treat as always. Equity is back Monday morning, Wednesday morning, Friday morning. We'll talk to you all then. Peace. Peace.